let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. And, and uh, Lord, thank you so much for these uh, amazing stories that we've heard today, these true stories of, of change in, in Long Tai's life and the people in India and the work that you're doing there. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and your faithfulness and all that you're doing in this world, Lord. We give you the credit for it. Um, yeah, please help us today as we uh, read and study your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'll go ahead and dismiss all the children uh, for Children's Church. If you have a child uh, four years old and or under, again, if you have a child four years old or under and you want to take them back to Children's Church and you haven't already done that, <laughs> you, you may do so now. So if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and grab those and let's read the text for the day. As we all kind of stretch here and breathe in the air and wake our bodies up I, so we can take in the word today. First Samuel chapter one. We're going to read that and then a handful of verses there in chapter two. So there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of to- Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer 
to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And coming down to verse 9. The Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You may be seated. Well, it's wonderful to have you all here today at Central Baptist Church. I've been amazed and blown away by our God's faithfulness uh, today, as we've heard Long Tai's testimony and about the work in, in uh, South Asia as well. So in opening our time today, I want to share a quote with you by uh, a British, uh, I believe he was a theologian, if not an author, but his name is G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton once said, the Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So Chesterton said, it's not that Christianity has, has been tried and found that it's lacking in something. It's the other way around, that, that people see that the Christian walk is hard. It's going to take endurance. It's going to require suffering, like Long Tai talked about today. It's a lifelong commitment of following our God. And because of that commitment that it takes and the sacrifice that it will take, it's left on the table. It's left untried. Um, sadly, all of the uh, promises of God about eternal life and joy and bliss are not enough to motivate people to detach from their sin and repent. So why don't people believe in God and desire to be faithful to Him? Why do people leave the, the Christian faith untried? Why do they make every excuse in the book? Why do they avoid God like the plague? And again, the answer is because God has made it very clear in His Word that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to believe in Him, it's going to require suffering. Remember what Jesus said when He called people to be His disciples. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, most people don't want to die on a cross once, let alone every single day. And Jesus said, that's what it's like to follow me. You die to yourself daily. So I'm not here to mislead people into believing that following Jesus will make you healthy, wealthy, safe, and comfortable. 
Following Jesus is dangerous. Believing God will require us to suffer. But listen to this. We must always remember that God always has a purpose for our suffering. Yes, we will suffer. But God has a purpose for that. A glorious reason for our suffering. And He will always bring good out of it if we trust Him and hold fast to Him in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of text before us today. We're going to work through it quickly, but the message is very simple. God will redeem your suffering if you trust in Him. And the way that we see Hannah in this story trusting in the Lord is she turned to Him in prayer and she held on for dear life. And God redeemed her suffering. See, I can make you a promise today that's based on God's word. God will redeem your suffering too in the most awesome, glorious, soul-thrilling way that you could ever imagine if you're faithful to trust Him. I want to be clear. When I say that God will redeem your suffering, what I'm saying is that God will rescue you from your trials. He will rescue you from your circumstances where you are suffering. And he will bless you and reward you because you were faithful to trust in him. There is not a single story in the Bible where people trusted God and were not rewarded for it. In breathtaking ways. We're always rewarded when we trust in him. So God will redeem your suffering. He will redeem it. He will redeem it. You must pray, God, please, God, help, God, redeem my suffering. Redeem me in the midst of this. Bring good out of this, the good that you have planned and intended that's a part of your plan that's going to help your glory be known and my joy to be complete and maximized in you, Lord. When you face suffering, fall to your knees and pray, God, redeem this for your glory. God redeem this, and you will. I'm basing this on a true story that we have read about today, Hannah's story in the Bible. So I want us to push into chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 here today. And first and foremost, I want us to see that, that God, that, I'm sorry, that Hannah was suffering intensely. She was suffering greatly. She had a cross to bear. It's very... Clear. If, if you go through chapter one and you and you underline every reference to Hannah's suffering, the whole chapter will just you'll just be underlining sentence after sentence. The author goes to great lengths to show that her life was very hard. She was in a very desperate place. Notice in chapter one, verse two, that her husband Elkanah had two wives. Now it's possible the reason that he had two wives is that Hannah could not have children. She was barren. And so he married a second wife to raise up an offspring. We see that pattern in the Old Testament. When the uh, patriarch, the man of the house, couldn't have a, a child, he would marry another wife, another to have a child. We don't know that that's the case here, but we do know that Elkanah truly loved Hannah. But she was barren. And so he had a second wife. We know that as well. And so that's 
maybe the first time that we see Hannah's suffering, the fact that she doesn't get to have her husband all to herself. She has to share her husband with another man. That is a circumstance of suffering. In chapter 1, verse 2, again, she had, uh, Elkanah had two wives, and Penina had no children. It says in verse 2, but Hannah, Hannah had no children. So Penina did have children, and Hannah had no children. It goes on in verse 5 to say that Elkanah would have a sacrifice every year. But to Hannah, he would give a, a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So this suffering that she was going through was brought on by the Lord himself. It was a test, if you will. Verse six, it says that her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. So notice how emphatic the language is here. Her rival would provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. And notice when it would become the most intense. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So the, 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 the location or the place of worship where she would have been able to hear the word of God and been filled with hope, that is when the enemy poured on the pressure the most. It made it the most intense. Do you see that in the text? As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. See, when the spiritual warfare kicked in, when the lies were, were, were pouring in the most is when the truth was so close. Right there. Again, we're looking here at Hannah's suffering. Notice Hannah's reaction to that in verse 7. Hannah wept and she would not eat. So maybe your husband would come alongside and comfort her. That's not the case. Verse eight says, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Why, why, why? Hannah, what's your problem? Am I not more than you than, than 10 sons? Was he trying to comfort her? Uh, maybe. You know, I think guys oftentimes try to comfort their wives, but they fail. And we know that he's not comforting her at all because He's not relating to her whatsoever. He's like, why are you so sad? Cheer up, Hannah. Come on. What's the, what's the problem? He's not down on her level. He's not listening. He's not listening to his wife. And you can imagine how Hannah was suffering in the midst of so much grief and sorrow and her own husband is not on the same page. He doesn't understand. He's not showing compassion. I love it later on in the story because it says that God listened to her. But Elkanah did not listen. He was not on the same wavelength as Hannah. Didn't know her suffering. Didn't know the depths of her despair. Wasn't caring for her soul well. You can imagine Hannah felt alone. Moving on to see more of these References to Hannah's suffering. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord. She wept bitterly. How many times in your life have you wept bitterly? I mean bitterly. Like it just doubled you over in pain and sorrow with grief. She weeps bitterly. And she vows a vow in her heart. And she says, O Lord of hosts, 
if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So she's, she's been over in overwhelming sorrow and grief and she just cries out to the Lord and says, God, please just give me a son. And if you do, I will give him back to you in your service. Well, the priest sees her praying this and she's, she's, her, her, her mouth is moving, but she's, she's not speaking out loud, right? In verse 12, it says that that Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So even the priest judges her. So if if things couldn't get much worse, she's just praying. (laughs) And the priest is like, get out of here. What are you doing in the temple, you drunken woman? I mean, it's just, it couldn't get much worse for poor Hannah. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah, rather than just like, you know, giving, you know, responding disrespectfully, she says, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. Verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's how you've treated me as if I'm a worthless woman, but I'm not. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Do you see in chapter one that it's just making a huge point that Hannah was in the depths of suffering and woe and sorrow. But what did she do? Did she turn away from God? Did she give up? Did she walk away? Did she become bitter towards the Lord? No, she turned to God in prayer. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord in the midst of her weeping, in the midst of her bitter weeping, she turned to the Lord. She turned to God. Hannah turned to God in prayer in her her suffering. She turned to the only one who could make a difference. She has faith in God. See, God had a plan for Hannah. God had a plan for this suffering. He had a reason for it. And Hannah, perhaps she had no clue about this. So she's suffering. And I want us to sit with that. I want that to sink in. I don't know what suffering you have endured and how you can relate to Hannah. 
in her pain, in her sorrow, in her enemy rubbing this in her face. But in the midst of her suffering, she turns. God had a special mission for her. It required suffering. But God had a plan to redeem her suffering. Verse 19, it says, Then they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. They went back to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, that is, he had intimate relations with her. That's how the Hebrews would talk about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and she bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. See, God had a plan to redeem her suffering. And God was using suffering to bring Hannah's will into one accord with his. Brothers and sisters, the will of man and the will of God are two different wavelengths most of the time. Do you see? The will of man is like this. The will of God is like this. What does God use so often to bring those two wills together? Suffering. Do you see how Hannah wanted a son, but God had something that he was offered that he was after as well. See, God wanted to restore the worship of his temple. If we look into chapter two, thank you. If we look into chapter two, we will see that the worship of the one true God was in great jeopardy. Look in verse 12. It says the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And the implication there is that that was a, uh, an abusive thing to do. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from your hand, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let the fat burn first, which was 
according to the law. And then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So notice what's happening here is that you have these corrupt priests. But in the meantime, you have the boy Samuel who was... uh, given by God, a gift by God, an answer by prayer. God intervened in Hannah's life to redeem her suffering and her sorrow, to give her a son. Well, then she takes that son and she gives her son to the temple. And the temple was corrupt. And you had these corrupt priests who were taking advantage of people and and abusing people. And notice it even says in verse 22, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These guys were even sleeping with the ladies at the temple who were there to serve. I mean, the, 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 the corruption was rampant and widespread. And people were going there to worship Yahweh in sincerity and they were just being blocked by these evil priests from even having a relationship with God. And God says, I'm going to do something about that problem. I'm going to put one of my servants right in the midst of that evil system, and I'm going to raise him up in the midst. And I'm going to raise him up as a prophet, and I'm going to judge the house of Eli. Notice in verse 27, what happens is a man of God comes to Eli and he confronts him about these things. And he says, Eli, because of the wickedness of you and your house, I'm going to remove you from the priesthood. I'm summarizing here. Drop down to verse 35. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that is in my heart and in my mind. Chapter three, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So the people were not even hearing from God at this point. But in chapter 3, we see the story of how God calls Samuel to be a prophet. And if you haven't read chapter 3 um, ever or before, I just want to give you that as a homework assignment this week. It's a great chapter. Long story short, God calls Samuel. And in verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So God began speaking to his people again through the prophet Samuel. Now we go back to Hannah's suffering. We go back to Hannah's suffering in chapter one. Just deep, dark, depressing distress. Remember the, 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 the will of man and the will of God. And God used that pressure and that distress for this woman to, to not only say, God, give me a son, but give me a son and I will give him back to you. 
because God had a greater purpose in mind. God had a special purpose in mind for this woman and her suffering and this son. God was going to take her son and put him in the midst of the temple that was corrupt. He was going to judge the wicked priest. He was going to raise up Samuel who would go on to anoint Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament, David. And through David, David would reform the worship of the temple completely. Hannah, how did you hold on? How did you know? Why did you turn to the Lord? Hannah could not have known the specifics that God was going to use her to bring Samuel into the world who would go searching to one of the tiniest villages in all of Israel, to Bethlehem, to find David, to anoint him, to raise him up to be Israel's greatest prototype king to whom God would make the covenant with David that later the Messiah would be born as one of his descendants. Hannah could not have known the specifics. However, there were witnesses that God had given Hannah in her life so that she could trust him. So what I'm trying to say is that Hannah didn't just believe in God for no reason. God gave her testimony and a reason to believe. He gave her promises to hold on to. For example, if you look back into the accounts in Genesis, we see that there is a pattern in the book of Genesis where Abraham had a wife, Sarah. And what do we know about Sarah? She was barren for all of her life until she was 90 years old and she finally gave birth to Isaac. What do we know about Isaac? Isaac married a woman named Rebecca. What do we know about Rebecca? She was barren until Isaac prayed and the Lord opened her womb. And then what do we know about the next generation, about Jacob's wife? Jacob's wife named Rachel was barren. But Jacob prayed and Rachel bore a son. So we see in the word of God that God had given precedent for Hannah to trust in the promises. That God had a reason for her barrenness. There were also living witnesses at the same time. If you turn back in your Bible to the book of Ruth, this is really fascinating. But if you turn back to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We just talked about this a couple of weeks ago in church, this story about Ruth and Boaz. <clears throat> but there was a man named Boaz and, 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 and a woman named Ruth. And Boaz married Ruth after her husband had died. And this is what it says in chapter 4, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, that is, Ruth. May the Lord make Ruth, who is coming into your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now, the location of this is important. 
Okay? Because the elders of the town here are saying, Boaz, we, we pray that you would just be famous in Bethlehem. Okay? He goes on to say in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave, gave her conception. Now Ruth had been barren up to this point as well. So once again, we see God intervening. He gives Ruth a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. May all of Israel hear about this story. May all of Israel hear about this barren Moabite woman, Ruth, and how you have visited her. And you have been gracious and you have been kind to her. And it goes on to say in verse 16 that a son has been born to Naomi. Um, they, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I'll do my best and I hope you can follow this. We have... We have Ramah and we have Bethlehem and we have Jerusalem, if you're looking up here. So Ramah, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. They're all very in close proximity. Okay. And if you look at the, the generations, you have Hannah, you have, you have Hannah, you have Samuel, and then you have David, right? You understand that? Hannah had Samuel and then Samuel in the next generation found David. Well, if you look at the generations in Ruth, you would have had Obed, you would have Jesse and David. So if you follow that, you can write it down and try to figure it out. But I, I, I made sure that I did the math. And the point is that, that Hannah and Obed would have been contemporaries living at the same time. And it talked about how Obed, his name would be famous throughout Israel and how this story would have a ripple effect and how people in all the surrounding region would get to hear about God's faithfulness to this barren woman. So back to Hannah, how did she hold on through the distressing times? She had the word of God. She had the witnesses of God. Hannah turned to the Lord in her suffering and her suffering ended in glory. Not only did she have a son, but far better than having a son, God revealed himself in a mighty way. Look at chapter two. First Samuel chapter two, God reveals himself to Hannah. So after her suffering is complete and God has intervened and given her a son and she brings her son to the temple and drops him off. You might expect to see her wiping the tears away from her eyes and to be broken, but instead she breaks out into a great prayer of rejoicing as God reveals himself mightily to her. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. I rejoice in your salvation. And then she talks about God. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. This is the woman who was bent over in great distress and great sorrow. 
Nobody understood her misery. And now she's saying, there's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, that is the perfect amount. But she who had many children is forlorn. The idea there is that, that she can't even get out of bed. She's so sorrowful. That's the picture that the Hebrew word paints there. Verse six, the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to the pit, he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. There is nothing that God cannot do. He is a good and just a righteous, a kind, and fair judge. And in due time, for those who trust him in the midst of their suffering to redeem them from all their sorrows, he will act. He will reveal himself. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, verse nine. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Your human strength can do nothing on the day of disaster, in other words, Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But look at what she says here at the end. He will give strength to his anointed, to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. She ends with this thought that God is going to judge the ends of the earth. He's going to raise up a king an anointed one, and he will judge the ends of the earth. Who did Hannah see? Who was she talking about at this point? Who was this king? This isn't David. David judged Israel. David was judged himself for the sin that he committed in Israel. But this king will be a faithful, righteous judge whose jurisdiction will reach the ends of the earth. God will raise him up. This is not David. This is the son of David. Before there was ever a king in Israel, notice that at this time in, the, in, the, in, in Israel's history, there were no kings. Samuel, her son, is called the last of the judges. So at this point, she's talking about a king of Israel when they didn't even have kings sit on the throne. She's seeing the forever king. Again, the beauty of the story is that Hannah's son Samuel would anoint David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made these great and precious promises to David that one day his son would sit on the throne forever. And it was David who wrote Psalm chapter 2. Could you turn there with me? Psalm chapter 2. Verse 
Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the king that Hannah saw, that she spoke of. The king of the nations, the king of the world, the king of the heavens, the king of all eternity, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah himself. You look at the, the suffering that Hannah endured. You look at how she held on to the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that, that Hannah was holding on to the Lord through, through the word of God or through the witnesses of God? Because she held on. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hannah trusted in the character of God. She trusted in the goodness of God. And brothers and sisters, I want to ask you today, where do you turn when, when your suffering is unbearable? Or when your suffering is just the daily grind? And you're just irritable that day and frustrated with whatever's happening. Where do you turn? Are you turning to the Lord to redeem you and to redeem that suffering for his glory and your good? Turn to the back of your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. I want us to see another example of turning to the Lord and suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. I'll give you a chance to find it. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus, look at the picture of Jesus here. In the days of his flesh, that is when he was here on earth, he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Why? Why was he crying out with loud cries and tears? Because he was in anguish. You see, he was suffering deeply. He was going through the, the, the misery and the pain and the rejection and his rivals taunting him. 
and perhaps the, the spiritual barrenness that he saw in his own disciples. When is Peter ever going to get it? He's crying out with loud cries and tears. What about you in your barren circumstances? I don't know what those are for you, but we all have them. We all have these areas of our lives where we suffer. Some of us have chronic suffering in our health. Some of us are wishing that we could have children. Some of us have children with disabilities. Some of us are facing death. We have this barrenness, these dark places in our lives, and we need God to redeem those things. God, would you help us? Are you turning to God in prayer? Do you abide, like Matthew said today? Do you abide in his word? Do you remember the very great and precious promises that he's given to you? It's just a simple but profound message that we see in Hannah's life. Great suffering, turning to the Lord in prayer, and God redeeming her from that suffering in ways that she could never imagine to bless the entire world. This woman is suffering, but God had a plan through her suffering to bless the entire world. I don't know what he's going to do through your suffering, but if you will be faithful and hold on, God will redeem your suffering. That is a message of hope for us today. Come on, God's going to redeem your suffering. Believe that he'll redeem your suffering. People in the world say, that's ridiculous. How can you be rejoicing at a time like this? When all of these terrible things are happening in your life, when you're facing death, but you're still rejoicing, that doesn't make any sense. It does. If you have the hope of the gospel, if you believe in the Redeemer, that he will come and he will. This is the Christmas season. We pretend if you will, we kind of reenact this every year, the nativity story. We're we're all anticipating the coming of Jesus. And on Christmas morning, oh, he's arrived and he's laid in a manger. Brothers and sisters, God kept his promises. Samuel went on to anoint David. God promised David that he would have a son. God kept that promise, laid him in a manger, lived a perfect life, never sinned, died on the cross as a consequence for your sin. God kept his promises. He raised him from the dead. He did not let his Holy One see corruption, but he raised him from the dead. He ascended on high. He gave him the throne of heaven. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you today, is coming again to judge the ends of the earth, just like Hannah said at the end of her prayer. And on that day, he's going to raise up the humble and he's going to humble the proud. And even if you have to wait, brothers and sisters, even if you have to wait until that day to be exalted, he will exalt you on that day. He will redeem your suffering. He will. He will. He will redeem it. Why didn't God stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit in the garden? You ever wondered about that? I mean, God, I mean, if he's a good parent, why wasn't he watching his kids? No, he was watching them and he gave them every opportunity to, to succeed. But they were treacherous. They were faithless. They were unfaithful. They, they sinned against God. But 
we see the full panorama of God's plan. We see the end of the story. We see that God had a plan all along to reveal himself as a redeemer. God could have just been a perfect creator who made a perfect creation and kept it that way. But instead, he wanted to be known in each of our lives as a redeemer. As a one, as the one who redeemed us from our suffering and from our sorrow. Brothers and sisters, I will tell you a quick story of God's redemption in my life. And you all have these stories. But several years ago, most of you, I mean, probably everybody knows I had a pickup truck right out in front of our, I guess this was, okay. So the catalytic converter was stolen off the truck. I took it to the shop. They were fixing my truck in the shop. It caught on fire and burned. I lost the truck. They gave me the insurance payment of $17,000. I lost it all in an internet scam trying to buy a new truck. I don't know if I've ever told the whole story on that. It was humiliating. It was humbling. It was hard. I remember the afternoon when I was sitting on my front porch waiting for the truck to show up, right? Oh, we're dropping the truck off today. We're dropping the truck off today. It never came. And I realized that it was starting to set, set in that, okay, I think I've been lied to. I think I've been scammed. And I looked it up on the internet. And sure enough, by this time, dozens of people had fallen into this scam and all kinds of people had thrown tons of money away and we'd all been robbed, basically. We... And the saddest thing to me that day was not that I lost $17,000, but that I was going to have to go and tell my wife what I had done. Now, she knew. I told her, I think this is legit. I, I'm going to go ahead and buy this truck. She prayed for me. She supported me. It was not her fault at all. But I felt so terrible knowing that I had just wasted all of that. How is God going to redeem that? That's what you ask yourself in those kinds of times. How? how? Don't ask how. <laughs> you have no idea how. But you know who you serve. You know who you trust. One way that he redeemed that is just that I realized that there are people in my church that loved me and supported me even when I was a fool. Even when I had been done a foolish thing. First person I called was Joseph. I said, Joseph... I said, the truck thing was a scam. I said, I lost all the money. Pray for me. And he did. He didn't judge me. I told my wife. It broke her heart. But she prayed for me and she prayed with me. She didn't turn on me. So God showed me that I have dear friends in the church. He showed me that my wife is loyal and she loves me. I mean, $17,000 is a lot to lose. But when you see you have friends like that, I mean, can you say it's worth it? I, 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 God sometimes uses the pain of our lives to, to show us like what we have and the gifts that he's given us all around us. By the end of that year, um, we, our family received a, 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 a donation to help us in ministry, to, to, to help us for just a crazy amount of money that we, we have never received a donation like that. I don't know if we ever will again. Um, I'm not even going to say the amount because that's not the point. But I'm saying that by the end of that same year that I lost that truck, 
we had been provided for in one gift for the entire next year of ministry. And God showed me through that gift, but just through a number of ways that I won't take the time to try to like explain it all right now, but God made it abundantly and undeniably clear that he had redeemed that circumstance. Never saw that $17,000 again. I drive a car now instead of a truck. (laughs) Please redeem that, Lord. (laughs) But he redeemed it. He redeemed it. And I'm not broken anymore the way I was. For a while, there was just shame and sadness and like a cloud that just followed me around. And I couldn't believe I just kicked myself over and over again. But God has been faithful to redeem that. And I can tell you that with joy in my heart today. And I don't know what your situation is and your circumstance. You serve a God who's able. You serve a God who raised Jesus from the dead. And he will redeem it. Trust in him today, church. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this day. And I want to bring my brothers and sisters to you now and all of our fallenness and all of our brokenness. And God, we need redemption. And we cry out for it today. Unashamedly, we cry out for it today. We beg. God, we come just like dressed in in rags and just with, with just open hands, empty hands. God, we just need your blessing. We need you to save us. We need you to bless us. We need you to encourage us in the meantime. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. I will redeem it. God, would you redeem the suffering of your people, God? The loss of loved ones and spouses and parents and children and and barrenness in the womb and marriages that are broken. And God, would you redeem the suffering of your people? Would you redeem it? And like Hannah, God, would you reveal yourself to us so that we can boast in who you are and we can give a testimony about you and how you have redeemed us from all of our sorrows and our woes and our suffering. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God, I pray for Central Baptist Church that you would raise people up from the bed of suffering that they are on, from the circumstances of suffering that they are in, from the sins that they are ensnared by. God, that you would redeem us and that we would give a testimony and give glory so that this message of a God who can do all things will spread all over the world, God. It's not just a story in a book, but God, it's a story that's alive in our hearts because you have personally redeemed us. You have redeemed us. And for those today who are waiting for your redemption and your salvation, May they hear the words that Eli spoke to Hannah. May the Lord grant you the petition on your heart. And may the Lord redeem you. God, revive your hope in your people today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand.